Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra in on-trend hues like green, citron, and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, 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 everybody. How are you doing today? I'm Ray Harkins, hanging out with 100 Words or Less, the podcast, hanging out with you on your beautiful commute or your your jog or just whenever you're listening to this, you know? I, I'm always curious because, uh, you know, people email the show and are like, hey, I've spent so much time with you. And there are times where I like to paint a picture in my head of like what it is that you're doing. Because I know what I do when I listen to podcasts. Usually it's, you know, driving or, you know, on my on morning walks and that sort of stuff. So, you know, you always feel like uh, you're just hanging out with somebody. So anyways, we have a amazing, amazing discussion today with Daniel Austin, who uh, plays in a band called Die Young, a incredible hardcore band from Texas. 
and he is also a very uh, prolific author, and he also runs a website and a, uh, I, I guess, yeah, I would call it company, <laughs> Vegan Meathead. So he is into weight training, and he's been vegan for a long time, and uh, he wrote a book. He wrote multiple books. He has uh, his book called Vegan Meathead, but then he also has uh, books of poetry and his first work of fiction, which is really, really good, and you can find anywhere you buy books. But um, <clears throat> yeah, he's just a really, really compelling person. I've met him via my work at PETA. I just found him to be an incredibly uh, insightful and intelligent dude. And so I wanted to have him on the show and that is exactly what we did. So more on him in a few minutes. You can email the show 100 words or less at gmail.com. Been getting some fun chats and feedback from people, tossing out some guest ideas. Someone was like, hey, you should get Ryan from Carry On. And I was like, yeah, I've, I've tried tried to circle around him. But uh, yeah, I just always love that that dialogue that you get back and forth. And sometimes people are kind enough to be like, hey, I actually you know bought your band's CDs or whatever. <laughs> like, And you just are able to open up some interesting discussions with people. So email the show. You could rate and review it on whatever platform you are using, whether it's Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is is just contribute a little bit because, uh, yeah, it just makes the show seem more legit. And I appreciate that. Uh, I'm actually going to be, if you are at NAM, which if you do not know what NAM is, it is a huge, huge music, uh, instrument industry convention here in Southern California. I'm actually going to appear doing a live podcast. It's actually my first live podcast at the Gator cases booth. I don't have any details beyond it's going to be Sunday, January 19th from noon to 1 p.m. So if you're at NAM, come hang out and you can watch me interview. I'm actually going to be interviewing Josh Newton, who plays in Shiner and also used to play in Every Time I Die. A really, really fun uh, discussion I plan on having with him. And he's kind enough to, uh, yeah, drop by the booth and uh, be able to record a podcast. So yeah, if you're at NAM, say what's up. Come see the show. And uh, yeah, Gator Cases. Thank you for having me out. Um, what else do I got to tell you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. I hope you're doing well. The new year we're, we're in it, man. We're a couple weeks into it. Everyone's killing their new year's resolutions or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I always find those new year's resolutions to be, um, not very helpful. I don't do them. Um, I know some people need them as motivation, but you know, I kind of just look at it. It's like, Oh, turning of the page. And you know, maybe here is some things that I can maybe improve on this year. Um, I'm not necessarily a goal oriented person. Um, I don't need like these, these things that I'm striving for. I just, uh, you know, I want to be a, you know, maybe more healthy person. Maybe you want to be a better person to those I care about that sort of, you know, generalized stuff. But anyways, yeah. So here, let's, let's talk to Daniel. Okay. Great chat. You will like it. I promise. Okay. I'll talk to you after the episode is over. Like I always do. Obviously, we first met when we both worked at uh, PETA, the animal rights organization. I was already familiar with Die Young just because, you know, I whatever, like everybody pays attention to hardcore and it's just like, oh, yeah, like I like Die Young. Um, but I, I'm sure this really? is some people like us. I know. Yeah, some people do. I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of <laughs> weird. But, but I'm sure you experienced this when you first started to work at PETA where it was like you immediately get introduced to all the hardcore kids that work there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, that was kind of um, – I was kind of invited to work there by people who liked that young. Oh, really? Oh, that's even – Yeah, fun. like I don't know how big of fans they were, but they knew I was the singer of Die Young and, that I, and they were looking for someone to 
tore their ass off in PETA 2, and they knew, oh, well, that guy, you know, he, like, he probably doesn't make real money, so let's... <laughs> Let's, uh, he probably thinks PETA money is real money, so <laughs> he, we know he can tour. So <laughs> right, let's let's put him on the road. Yeah. Hey, you know what I was thinking though is we didn't properly meet, but remember that to die for matinee at in Long Beach. Oh, dude, yeah, where I split my head open. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Finer Truth opened that show last minute, and you guys played later that day, and we didn't eat that day. But that was the first time I ever saw you. That's r- oh my gosh, I totally yeah. forgot about because I, yeah. I yeah I mean I obviously remember that show because I got my head split open by a tooth, but uh, <laughs> I totally forgot that another yeah. like you know I have the show poster, but I remember yeah you guys like I didn't know that you were attached to that band, but got it okay. Yeah, I was the guitarist, and that was my my high school band. Those are that was our third tour ever, and I believe our last tour. <laughs> just just like yeah. every good high school band it's like yeah yeah one or two tours um yeah. <laughs> but the you know as we got you know introduced through PETA and you know sort of tangentially working alongside of each other um the thing that i was always impressed with and honestly still i'm impressed with you today just you know observing you from afar um okay. like you uh you hustle you know, you're a dude and, you know, I say that and I hate to use that word because a lot of people in like, you know, whatever, you know, Silicon Valley where it's like, oh, this guy's got hustle. You know, I, I it's like it just sound, <laughs> it sounds dirty in a way where it's like, oh, you got hustle. So you're just trying to. Yeah, I, I don't really do it out of opportunism. I'm I'm uh, I just frantically am <laughs> not content. So. <laughs> yeah, you're just searching around. Right? <laughs> and this may be too big of a question to kind of start things off with, but, you know, I think you can handle it where it's like where, um, you know, because that, that isn't something that is hardwired, you know, kind of in people. You know, people either, uh, you know, are just content to like working whatever some, you know, one particular job and like, you know, have like, uh, you know, maybe play video games on the side. But like, you know, you're involved with a ton of different things. Um, where do you think that kind of like, you know, did you, I guess, observe your parents hustling? Was that just something that you always were? Where did that kind of come from? You know, that's an interesting question because um, the older I get, the more I realize that I have this industrious nature that my father has, okay. which not everyone on his side of the family has. And I remember like last Christmas, I went to visit my aunt, his sister up in Ohio, and we were talking about how insanely industrious my dad is versus the rest of the family and we don't know why it's just that guy who is my my dad builds homes and designs homes for a living and he also uh builds boats and uh he's a painter and growing up i didn't get along with him very well so i didn't really appreciate all he did but he's just a, a constant hustler and um I, I, you know, uh, my, my dad's doing pretty well for himself now. So if I could find out how to turn my hustle into actual money, that would be great. <laughs> sure. Sure. So, he, um, so, so he just, ba- he, would you kind of peg him as sort of a, uh, a, a Renaissance man of, of building and like obviously using his hands and in art and yeah, yeah. He's a very crafty person. Um, and he didn't even go to school for any of it. He taught it all to himself reading books as a kid and then people as soon as he was 18 before he was 18 they were hiring him to build boats or houses wow that's yeah you know and he, he probably is in the last generation where you could get away with that uh <laughs> yeah that's but true his, his, in his industry his reputation is so strong that people don't care he doesn't have a degree 
Right. Cause he can, he can outbuild people with degrees, you know? So, so, uh, so you think just kind of the, the observation or the, yeah, the, it, it, through kind of osmosis, you watching your, your dad kind of, you know, hustle well, around. I didn't, I didn't grow up with him. My parents split when I was five. Oh, and, okay. And he was definitely a workaholic kind of man. So he didn't, he wasn't present a lot in the family. And, uh, I think that's part of why he and my mom had such issues. Um, but well, I, I'm saying that when you consider nature versus nurture, I think there's some nature for me to have that kind of, uh, personality or drive. Um, you know, like I, I, I am almost always doing things, you know, like it used to be just hundred percent band. Like when I was, 19 to well really from like high school until uh geez my late 20s when you know we laid die young down after like nine seven seven years of die young but you know prior to that i had done finer truths for a few years and i was real serious at that but i was limited by being in school so um as soon as i was like a legal adult i was just going 100 percent with die young but um as, as I've gotten older and realized, oh, this music thing is – sometimes it's a hobby that can pay for itself, and that's cool and uh, enables me to travel with friends. But I, I've, I've gone on my own tangents like with writing and then also like with powerlifting and uh, vegan activism and things like that. Um, I don't know. I guess I've just been always restless. I have to find something to bring meaning to myself because just a day job or career uh, has never done that for me and, and i think a lot of people in in our sphere of punk and creativity and music or whatever you know it's like these these hobbies or these passions rarely support us financially so we have to find ways to juggle a bunch of things so that we can on one end make money and on the other end pursue what really is true to our authentic selves and um I, i'm still trying to find that balance and sometimes you know i appreciate you noting that i feel like that you think i'm always hustling them um, but yeah i often stretch myself too thin um yeah do you do you feel that kind of um i, I mean I, I think most people that like you said kind of have that um you know, creative push to do a bunch of things like, you know, the, the phrase, the Jack of all trades, master of none. Like, you know, I've very, <laughs> I feel that way all the time. <laughs> say, say it. And I, it's funny because I've heard people, you know, of, uh, you know, like really successful, you know, whatever actors and other people who are, you know, considered, you know, quote unquote successful also feel that same way. So I think that, you know, there's always that imposter syndrome, like all those critical voices in your head. I just don't think that like, I don't know, it just doesn't go away. No, and, and um, I guess maybe on some level as I get older, I mean, I'm 36, almost 37 now, um, I, I guess I feel more of a panic to really succeed at something, you know? Like, I, I have all these passions, and I, I guess that's cool that, you know, I, I, for the most part, I don't just resign at the end of the day and watch Netflix. Um, there's something that, after work or whatever I have to do to develop myself or some skill. But, uh, there's that that great line in, um, true detective season one. It says life's barely long enough to get good at one thing. So be careful what you do get good at. 
And uh, I don't know. I feel like I still haven't mastered one thing, but I don't really. It, it's hard to choose one thing. I, I, no, it's. I, I very much uh, you know empathize and identify with that too because I think that um, you know it's like I I look at people who have. Um, you know, uh, people have had the the experience that you and I have had being exposed to a subculture and, you know, diving into it and, you know, soaking it in and, and just, just experiencing so much of it, you know, and learning so much from, you know, business aspects and all these other things. And then you look at other people who have just been like, okay, you know, I, I went to college, I, I got this job, like, you know, I'm, I'm coding and like, that's like all that I do or whatever. And like, they just focus on that. And it, it's, it's so interesting because I'm like, most of the people like you and I and many others where it's just like, oh yeah, we kind of just like, I don't know, we, I mean, we focus and we know how to like get stuff done, but like, we just don't, we just can't do one thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they say in terms of financial success, just get good at one thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, whereas for me, I mean, um, I'm, uh, I, I guess when I was younger, I never cared about that at all. But now, you know, as you get older, especially I bet for you, like you have family and, uh, I just got rescue dogs, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's important though. They're they're, they're still they're still a, a fun a pretty heavy uh, obligation, but um, yeah, uh, it, I find it, it is more important to succeed financially at something because you can't just keep like throwing rocks in the pond, you know. Um, yeah, but man, I I, I can tell you that. When I did uh, live off of Die Young for the few years that we were going at it that hard, I actually I hated it. So the thing that I love to do, I bludgeoned to death. And that's why we broke up those those four years that we weren't a band. But uh, do you think that was what do you think it was because the uh, obviously that became your job like or was that? Was there other sort of thing, other influences that made you hate the thing? I think mostly it was that um, we had gotten to a point where we were kind of plateaued doing the DIY circuit. And looking back, it would have been wise if we really had ambition to carry on with the band like, like we kind of set out with to start employing management or a booking agent to people to kind of finagle us into new avenues to explore, you know, like to help market the band, but the band was never, we never looked at it as a business opportunity. It was, it was really, uh, uh, supposed to be a pure expression of how much we hated the world. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I get <laughs> you know? it. I get so it. when it started to be like, yeah, let's play this game. We were like, no, fuck that. We're just going to keep playing houses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and, and, and that was so defeating. It was just so like we watched other bands that, you know, couldn't even tune their instruments who had a good Pro Tools recording just ascend way further than us. And we started to get passed up on these tours that we thought we should be on. And we just got really resentful of the whole fucking game that even exists in underground music and and uh, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're sitting here. It's like June. And you're like, where has the time gone? And everybody's like, oh my gosh, I have no idea. I got to like accomplish all these other things. Take a moment. Focus on the things that obviously for one matter to you. But for two, look back, be like, what have I done? Well, what have I done? Not so well. 
And maybe I can, you know, ask some friends and family for some help. But where I have always gone to in regards to figuring out what I can do better, therapy. Therapy is an incredible tool at your arsenal that you can dip into. I've done it for my marriage. I've done it for myself personally. And I'm a huge advocate for what therapy can do for you because it is a third party that's able to look at what you can do to improve your life and be a person to help you along in your journey. And so I think if you were thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and entirely suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, and then boom, you're done. It's great. And then if you're not vibing with the therapist, you can switch it at no additional cost. So take a moment, reflect on the things you've done, reflect on the things you want to do, and visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM, let's create. Uh, I just thought, oh, I don't want to be a part of this shit. <laughs> yeah. And then also you, we had that thing where you know people like one or two of your songs and you realize that's all they're there for. It's not your catalog and the whole connection with like you know your work. It's like oh we like this one song where we can <laughs> you made it kind of anthemic so we can remember those words. Right. And, so you got a good mosh part. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And I realized oh like people actually aren't connecting with this on the level that I want them to, and they it's almost like you know they want us to play our one hit like we're one hit wonders, and I was basically just thinking fuck this all right you want band merch right the only place that you should go to is rockabilia.com use the code pc 100 words that's the number 100 words and you will get 15 percent off of your order they have so much rad stuff right now they have grab bags where you're able to get three long sleeves for 20 bucks or you're able to get like four t-shirts for $15. How awesome is that? You can just completely outfit yourself in new band merch and they are the place to order it. It's all officially licensed. 
quick shipping, great customer service, like everything you want from a company, they deliver. And uh, they also have really, really other cool things besides merch. Like you into the Misfits? How about they got action figures for the Misfits? They carry so much great stuff. Go to their website, check it out, be able to find whatever it is you're looking for and use the code PC100Words. That gets you 15% off your order. I love Rockabilia. They are the real deal and uh, you should order as much as humanly possible from them. Like maybe once a, once a week, maybe once every other week, okay? <laughs> Thank you very much, Rockabilia. Now, on with the show. Well, I, I totally understand because it's like, especially too, where, you know, when Die Young was the most active kind of in the, you know, mid 2000s, as it were, yeah. there was, you know, there was that idea that things could start to turn for bands that were, you know, playing hardcore where it was like, okay, you had the early 2000s where, you know, metalcore started to explode and bands started to, you know, quote unquote, make a living or whatever, Um and then, then it was like, you know, the mid two thousands is where everyone was kind of like trying to figure out what that actually meant. And so yeah. many, and like you said, so many bands existed on so many different levels where it was like, yeah, you could be successful. Like you said, like you guys were just, you know, doing DIY tour. And when I say just, I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Cause like that is a lot of hustle. Um, yeah. and it's, but then so many bands, like you said, you know, kind of like, built off the shoulders of all the bands in the early two thousands and just immediately kind of like, Oh, we, we don't, you know, we'll do one DIY tour or whatever, but then we can immediately, you know, level up. And then, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, Oh, Oh, I, I guess that's an option. <laughs> yeah. It was weird. I remember that time specifically because we, we quit our jobs at the end of 2005 and spent a couple years going full force, like a full-time band touring internationally. Um, and the only place we ever had an agent was in Europe uh, so everything we booked all over the world was just me. Um, but I remember at the end of 2005, we did we did a West Coast tour. It was actually to go play. We weren't officially on the trial reunion in 2005, but it was that pre-show. Oh, yeah, sure. And we and we wanted to go see the, the reunion show, which was one of the best shows ever. Um, but that tour, we were just like, man, we're doing so well. We don't know what to think about this. This is fucking weird that people are buying all this stuff from us and the shows are good. So maybe we should quit our jobs next year. <laughs> and, um, and you know, we did. And, you know, we played like 200 shows a year for like two years in a row. And it exhausted us. Sure. And, uh, I mean, definitely two of the craziest years of my life because, you know, those, that's when we played all over like East Asia and uh, – uh, Alaska and right. Well, you guys, it's just random places. Yeah, and you guys, you guys remind me too of you know when uh, Most Precious Blood, you know, started to like their ambition was very much in similar to yours, where you guys were like, let's play anywhere and everywhere, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, as much as humanly possible. And honestly, like not many bands have that. Uh, I guess drive or spark where it's just like, oh yeah, like I would like to play Africa or like you said, you play East Asia. Um, yeah. And it's, and like I said, not many bands do that. And it's just cool that you guys were really focused on just being like, well, let's, let's, let's try to take this as many places as possible. Well, I think part of me as a young man was so, uh, I don't know, kind of disappointed. I, you know, I tried to go to college and I hated it so much. I quit after a year and cause, cause after I, I did my first tour, with Finer Truth, um, the summer that I had graduated high school, and that ruined me because that made I couldn't focus 
in that first year of college because all I could do is daydream about going back on That's tour. tour. <laughs> you get the taste. You get the taste. Yeah, and when college didn't live up to my expectations, and I was spending all this money to go to it, working, you know, working um, pretty close to full time, I feel like. Uh, I just didn't feel like it was worth the sacrifice because I didn't even know what I wanted to be. All I knew I wanted to, to, to do was play music at the time. And I wasn't really thinking about the future. And uh, it was kind of all, I mean, the name Die Young was just kind of like, I don't care. You know, I don't care what my future is. I just want to go do what I want to do. And that was kind of how I came up with the band name. Um, and I, I guess I never... I had some disillusionment about careers and money and things like that because I felt like they were traps. And I thought, I just want to go see the whole world playing music. Mm-hmm. Right. And Accomplish so, as much as possible. Yeah, it was in, in the in the beginning, Da Young was built on this premise of um, let's play like old school influence hardcore, or like punk influence hardcore. I, I, I thought of uh, Bad Religion's album Suffer because it's so lyrically strong. And every song sounds exactly the fucking same. Right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, so because Finer Truth was basically a metal band. We were influenced by Earth Crisis, One King Down, Turmoil. And we we were young, but we wanted to be more like musicians. But it took us forever to write a song. With Da Young, it was like, let's play, you know, you know, heavier than Suffer by Bad Religion. But with that same premise of these songs are easy to play. And we can write a million of them real quick and get anybody to play them and just go. That was the point. Let's just go, you know? And um, that's what we did. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. The, um, and, you know, you being, I presume you were born and raised in Texas, yes? Yeah, born in Houston, raised in Houston. I've lived a few other places now, but most of my life was in Houston. Right. And so, you know, Texas is such a, yeah, I don't need to tell you it's a weird state because you've lived there and it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's depressing to drive through because, you know, you can fall asleep on one side and then eight hours later, you're still in the same state, but you feel like you've like the the scenery has not changed whatsoever. Um, yeah. and granted that's of course like, you know, on the, the 40, but, um, you know, so what is your relation to, you know, I guess the, the, the state at large, like, you know, do you, you obviously are connected to it. Um, you know, do you feel like it's home? Do you recognize the weirdness? Like where, where do you kind of sit with that? Yeah. Um, totally. It's full of contradictions, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and dichotomies, which I think makes it a really interesting place. Cause as much as people sometimes think they hate the idea of Texas and because people in Texas are like nationalists, <laughs> yeah we want to get out of here right yeah, texas is its own country and fuck the rest of the world texas is <laughs> right don't mess with texas that's it you know i mean yeah it's just uh it's just this strange attitude um and i remember when i started working at PETA, people were like you're not a normal vegan you're a texan vegan <laughs> what, really yeah, were- because um i was like the guy in the tour van that was like no we got to get to the gym Oh, and, <laughs> that's so funny. And, 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 you know, I just had this attitude of like, we're vegan. So, you know, we're superior and, <laughs> and, um, we're, and, you know, I, I guess I just had this attitude of kind of like, I don't know, like some kind of macho vegan or something. Sure. Which I've totally continued to 
lean into to yeah. up as a per- persona with this vegan meathead thing I do. But um, but you know, like people were you, you just hanging around vegans from other parts of the country. They were just like, we don't know vegans like you. That that is so. I honestly, it, you you saying that, I never would have reflected on that. But like, uh, I, I yeah, no, I could I could see where people would be like, oh yeah, like you probably could typify that um, yeah. in different places. I, and I attribute it to, to just being a Texan and that kind of bold personality that people will associate with Texas because, because also, you know, growing up, uh, well, I went vegetarian when I was like 15, but uh, I didn't go vegan until I was like 22, something like that. And, um, but also, you know, Texas has its stereotypes about barbecue and cattle and meat and, so I think that to be a vegan from Texas, you kind of have to be a more adamant, like one up the meat eaters in Texas kind of attitude, you know? So I could see that maybe, maybe that's part of that persona for me also is, is that, you know, you're, you're always kind of contending with the culture at large where you come from. And uh, in some ways I still, I think in, you know, that, that attitude is within me, like the Texan kind of fuck you We're from Texas. You can't tell us what to do. But at the same time, it's like, I'm not a fucking cowboy. Uh, I don't like that kind of barbecue. Fuck you. I'm vegan from Texas. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I can understand that. Cause it definitely is a sort of, um, it, it, I mean, there's an attitude that clearly exists in Texas. And then there's also, you know, when you're specifically focusing on, you know, the punk and hardcore subculture, um, you know, Texas has always been such a really weird scene where it's like, you know, yeah. you, you have your disparate pockets of towns that, I mean, there, you can play, you could obviously do a two week tour of Texas and play. Yeah, you know, yeah totally. Play a little like, bit. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because East Texas, like when you've got Houston and Dallas, um, you know, D- Dallas always had its, uh, I, th- I think people had stereotypes about the hardcore scene being more Christian and conservative and a lot of really suburban, like sheltered kids from conservative households. Whereas Houston has always been like the more working class. Um, and especially with Dion being from Houston. When I started getting on political soapbox with Die Young, people in Houston, it's not that they necessarily disagreed. It's just they don't like being told what to think or what to do or, or, or just challenge. People in Houston are like, we've got jobs, unlike the rest of the country. We go to work. Just leave us alone. <laughs> it's very, very like blue collar. Like, look, we're doing all right. Just fucking don't disturb our fabric of reality here. <laughs> right. Don't rock the boat, dude. Yeah. And then you go to Austin where it's like Peter Pan syndrome out the ass. It's, you know, it's so more open to the arts and um, non-traditional modes of being an adult. Like you can be a kid in Austin for the rest of your life and people won't bat an eye. That's, you know. um, And then once you go like San Antonio, Corpus Christi, Laredo, I mean, it's very much just Mexico. Yep. Um, and people are so warm and welcoming and they circle pit <laughs> and, and they just are there to have fun and they're not judgmental. And, um, that's like a different planet. And then, you know, I lived in West Texas for, 
uh, about a year out by Big Bend National Park, which is, for people who don't know, it's I think it's kind of like the equivalent of the Grand Canyon, but in Texas. Just, you know, um, it's a really magical, isolated, off-the-beaten-path kind of place. And um, that in it, that's like traveling back into the – when people think of cowboys and Indians and all that shit in Texas, that's what West Texas in a lot of ways still is, you know. Like mm-hmm. like uh, No Country for Old Men, the movie, or Hell or High Water. I mean that's the kind of Texas that is still out in West Texas. It's, it's, it's like going through a time warp, and that's a really interesting – I actually, it's probably my favorite part of Texas because it's just so different. Sure. And like you can't replicate it. East side of Texas. Sure. Sure. No, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, and like you mentioned, your, um, you know, your parents separated when you were five. Do you, uh, like, what was your family structure like brothers and sisters and stuff like that? That's kind of interesting. I don't have any full blooded, um, brothers and sisters. I mean, they're all my brothers and sisters, but, uh, my parents got around, <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I have a sister who's nine years younger than me that my mother had, and uh, we we grew up together because I, I grew up with my mother when my parents split. Um, my dad had two boys with a woman who later died, um, and my brothers are seven and nine years younger than me. And then there was a sister that I found out about in my mid-20s <laughs> that my dad <laughs> had i guess with like a one night stand or something when he was still with my mom uh which might have precipitated the divorce um but i didn't know about this sister until i was like 26 years old so um so i got two sisters and two brothers and we all except for the one sister with my mom we all grew up separately but you know i was nine when that sister was born and um so i was I was very isolated. I was, you know, like a latchkey kid mm-hmm. and uh, spent a lot of time as a kid by myself because I didn't grow up in a household with brothers and sisters. And because, so, and because of that, like, did you, um, I guess, what kind of kid did you find yourself? I mean, how I know you to be is always, um, you know, like you're, you're friendly, but <clears throat> you're not, you know, loud. I would, you know, like you're not. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not the sort of guy where it's just like, you know, immediately people are just like, oh, dude, Daniel, just like calm down. Like you're yelling <laughs> all the time or whatever, you know, um, whereas I've been accused of that before. So, you know, did you find yourself kind of being, you know, more introverted and obviously inside your head yeah. when you're a sports yeah. guy or? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I did play uh, sports until my dad got me a guitar in fifth grade when I turned to 11. Because, um, you know, I was getting into music then, and it would have been like radio rock, like Nirvana, Pearl Jam. It was a lot of that Seattle stuff that uh, kind of turned me on to the kind of more aggressive rock. Um, but, yeah, I got a guitar when I was 11, and I feel like uh, into my early teen years, that's where a lot of my creativity went. Because when I grew up, I was uh, I liked to draw, and I was into comic books and those kinds of things and then i did play in like little league sports that my parents put me in and i was okay but um music is what kind of when i got a guitar and i started studying records and and music and taking guitar lessons that's when i really kind of sat in my own world at home and i I mean i had friends but um i've always been the kind of person when it comes to friends it's quality over quantity 
So, yeah, like we say, I'm the guy. If I walk in the room, people aren't, you know, it's not all about me. I'm not the center of attention. It's because I usually like to talk to two or three people and have really high uh, quality deeper conversations right you're picking your spots as opposed to yeah. like all right i gotta make the rounds and let everybody yeah. know that i'm here yeah but you know I, I like i spent a lot of time by myself as a kid playing guitar writing songs um i used to before i had a computer or anything i would make little tapes of just like met like bands that i would imagine and i would just record guitar tracks and then draw like some artwork and fit it into a tape case so that, that it was like, i know, love I that doing, yeah yeah i was doing i was just dreaming about being a musician when i was like 12 years old you know um so but i spent a lot it takes a lot of energy and concentration to do that so i i was by myself a lot and um right you were creating can you do, yeah. you do you remember any of the names of your fictional bands that you created well you know what's funny is the first band that I think I, well, there was dirt. <laughs> Dude, that's a pretty good. Wow. I like that. Yeah. I like And it. then there was low life, which actually was the first incarnation of finer truth in like eighth grade, which we actually played a show in a friend's garage for his birthday is our first show. We had five original songs and <laughs> we played a toadies cover of Tyler by the toadies oh. as, the, as the closer. Good. Um, but the, our original songs were, I don't know. I, I, in eighth grade, I did discover earth crisis on that Ozfest video. So I was getting into heavier music like that, but mostly like I was in middle school, I was listening to Metallica, Pantera, got into corn and Deftones. And, uh, I don't know what the fuck you would call that bay. It was like a career. It was a, middle school garage rock band that had all these strange influences or, from you just try to throw everything toadies yeah. <laughs> to metallica to i mean even at that point i remember one of the songs we played at that that garage birthday show was me trying to sound heavier like earth crisis so but, good you know what i mean yeah but uh yeah, it was just a mishmash as a kid because you know you don't have all this pretense as a kid. You just your mind's open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you there's no you are not uh, having to fit into any sort of definitions. You're just like I like yeah. this music and I want all of it to sound like this. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so that band was called Low Life, and then um, we reinvented ourselves as more of a hardcore type band because i'd gotten into earth crisis and sick of it all and bands like that i think by like by ninth grade and um we started playing local clubs as finer truth um but we weren't a straight edge band at that time because most of the guys involved didn't even know what that was it was like me and the singer knew what that was and he wasn't straight edge but uh by ninth grade i started claiming straight edge and so we 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 let go of that version of finer truth and i assembled a band to be a straight edge metalcore band by ninth or tenth. I was sixteen when we when Fire Truth played our first official show. It was on my birthday. Um so what I've been a sophomore in high school. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and uh, it was on my birthday, and we played our first official show as Finer Truth Houston Straight Edge Hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I lo- dude, I lo- so yeah. good, so good. Um, and so, you know, I, as you started to, you know, get, I mean, you were completely immersed in music, and like you said, you, um, you know, you didn't really 
care for school, so to speak. Did you, um, I guess, did you run into that in high school because you were so distracted by, you know, playing shows and stuff like that? Or did that really happen, you know, once you went away to college where you're just like, oh, dude, I don't, I don't care about school anymore? Yeah, no, I, I, I graduated with honors from high school and I kind of did high school in my sleep. Okay. And, um, uh, I, I think part of that is at least I wasn't distracted by drugs and partying cause I had found straight edge and, um, the only distraction I really ever had was, you know, I mean, at best you can kind of play shows on the weekend when you're in high school. So, I mean, uh, I didn't, I didn't have too many distractions in high school, I think, but then once I had the freedom as a legal adult to just not go back to school anymore, <laughs> I was like, why would I do this? <laughs> well, well, yeah. And I remember, you know, the summer that I told my parents, um, on two separate occasions because they were had been long since divorced but i traveled out to north carolina visit my dad told me yeah, i'm not going back to school i'm just gonna play in a band <laughs> he was just shaking his head like that's a really bad idea <laughs> um, and but you know i did it though because i went home that fall and we started die young and by december we were touring and we didn't stop since then. And by the end of the original run of Die Young, like Die Young in its prime, we had played like 35 countries. Yeah. And um, we really we really did it. You know, we put out a lot of records um, with with labels that we wanted to put them out. We toured with a lot of bands. And uh, yeah, you, know, you, you did was, you did the damn thing. We did the damn thing. Uh, when, um, you know, and, and when you were doing that, like you said, you know, you were uh, at the kind of the, the center of the, you know, business aspect of the band from booking shows. And like you said, probably dealing with record labels because you guys put out records with Eulogy or was it a Hand of Hope? I can't remember. No, it was. Uh, we did Graven Images on Eulogy. OK. Um, it was like that came out early 2007. So we recorded it in 2006. Got it. That was when Eulogy was making their big comeback as a hardcore label. Like Absolutely. they had signed Wisdom and Chains. They had signed Turmoil, but nothing came of that record. It's like I think they recorded it and then it never came out. Yeah, I, I signed into Century Media, so it was great. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then you put out what, those three songs? Right? I put out those three songs and the discography. That was my, that was my love letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey. Uh, way to go thanks man I, I, I'm proud of it anytime <laughs> you I did a lot of cool things over there I remember because I was like man now they're getting all the good bands um, <laughs> but yeah I mean remember that year they signed Kingdom and No Score and so I mean they were trying to get back away from because they had been very I think for a bit opportunistic with like pop punk and Christian metalcore to make some money and then they you know kind of lost their street cred yeah and, and they went on this signing spree of like real hardcore bands but then streaming happened and the whole music industry bottom. Yeah. 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 So, but so did you, um, you know, because you were doing all this, I know it's a function of the band to do this. So you don't really necessarily think of it as kind of the business aspect. Did you, um, I guess enjoy a lot of that or did you just do that because no one else was going to do that? I think I did it because, um, I'm a maniac who just naturally tries to <laughs> do everything myself, which is probably as I find as I get older, a little bit of a weakness. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, cause I would write all the songs too. Like I recorded all the guitar up until this like new incarnation of die young where we, we actually have new guitarists who can out shred me by far. So I let them do it now. 
But uh, all those years, man, I was writing it. I was booking. I was writing the lyrics. I was doing the artwork. I was making the T-shirts. I was insane. Um, <laughs> and I felt you know there was there was bands that we would play with. That I would look at, especially as I got older, and I thought, oh man, look at them collaborating. How cool is that? <laughs> oh wow, yeah. There's this you is know, like this like, is the idea of a, a non non dictatorship. Not yeah, like yeah, you know, I I tried to be a benevolent dictator, and I think that most of the guys who'd been in the band, like the twenty something of them, would agree that I was. There's only a couple that I had it out real bad with, but um, you know, I think that was a weakness on my character by growing up such a loner. I felt I had to do everything. Sure, so, sure. Uh, um, you know now the dynamic in the band because we still play i think people aren't aware that we still play yeah you guys are out you guys are out there when you have when yeah. you get cool opportunities uh, we, you say we yes. only played one show this year we put out a, a single and we played one show this year um but last the, the the few years before that you know we put out records and and probably played like 20 shows a year on average um but the dynamic we have now is that everybody helps with the songwriting and I'm not, because I have so many other things going on. I really delegate things to guys in the band, and and that they, they want to do it too, um, which I I enjoy um, that they want to do things for the band. Sure, <laughs> the col- um, you're like, wow, this is a collaborative nature. Well, you know, there was a lot of guys who came in and out of the band back in the touring days. I think just wanted the opportunity to tour, and they probably would have toured with any band. Um. And maybe they developed appreciation for how Dayoung did things by the opportunities that they got, you know, living through them. But uh, these days, it's kind of like, hey, guys, can we do this? And somebody or somebody says, hey, I got this riff. And they, you know, we, you know, group texting has really changed the dynamics of bands. You know, we didn't we didn't have that back the mid 2000s. We weren't group texting each other, you know, Uh, with clips of songs and shit, you know, Um. So things are a lot more available for each of us to contribute. It's easier for, I think, everybody to contribute now. And I, I like it more. It's just, you know, the band is fun now. That's why we're not, um, we're not trying to play a million. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting.
IBM. Let's create. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. In shows and when we write songs now, kind of like how I said when we started, it was all about go, 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 you know, keep it simple so we can go. Now it's like, we don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> We're not trying to play all these shows. So when we write a song, it's like our, our newest best effort to write a, an interesting song. So there's a lot more detail in the musicianship and the, uh, what we're trying to articulate versus just the one, two, three, four, go attitude that we had in the beginning. So the, the band is kind of done a one eighty. Yeah. Well, it's actually, there's no pressure and it's fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi. I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Soundrink.com is the place to go when you're looking for VIP tickets. Now, you've probably heard that word thrown around for the past couple of years, and you're like, oh, what does that really get me? Like, I don't know. Do I get some like special seat where I have to, you know, buy like six drinks at a venue or whatever? No. Soundrink works directly with bands and management to make sure their VIP experience, whatever it is that they are putting together, is not only authentic to them, but is authentic to the fans and the people who are coming to the show like they have experiences where you can go you know do like an acoustic meet and greet before the show ones where you can you know grab coffee with your favorite band ones where you can like you know play monopoly like there's all of this fun stuff that they are able to do because they actually care <laughs> about the people that are coming to the show you've probably seen some of these other companies that put together these vip experiences and you're just like yeah they're just doing this for some extra money Soundrink is not that. So visit soundrink.com. You'll be able to find 
all of your favorite bands on tour with those awesome packages that I'm talking about that can get you something more than just attending the show. You're able to, you know, maybe make some new friends of people who are like, yo, you like that band just as much as I do. Oh, awesome. That's cool. So it builds a community and I really, really appreciate that. So visit soundrink.com and find out more. You've, you've always struck me too, as just kind of, you know, with the nature of how you've pursued your, your projects, um, you know, always a bit of a, a nomad where it's like, you know, I mean, clearly you've toured for a majority of your life with the band. And obviously when you're working at PETA two and stuff like that, um, do you think like, but clearly touring of any shape or size, um, is a certain beast, you know? So how is your relationship with touring, I guess, evolved? Like, you know, would you like, would you flip a switch? And if you could tour 200 days out of the year that you would now, or, you know, what's your relationship like? You know, I got more into the idea of having an ordered life. Um, and I think, uh, well, initially when I left, when we hung Die Young up the first time and I started touring for Peter two, I had to be on someone else's schedule, you know? Um, and it wasn't like a nine to five, but we were kind of working those hours and still having to drive. And then I found that as I got older sitting in a van, I needed to stimulate my body more. So I got into working out. And then I found that working out really leveled me out and it helped me feel better and it made me better at my job. And then as being an advocate for animals, the response I got from people, I think just the way I carried myself and especially, you know, 10 years ago, people, if they saw a vegan who looked like they were in shape, they were like, what? We don't think people would ask me, you're not really vegan, are you? You know, sure. it, it motivated me to keep going with the fitness aspect. And, um, eventually I got into to powerlifting, which, um, you know, you have to really regiment your eating, your sleeping and, and your time in the gym. And that really taught me how to discipline myself to plan out my, my weeks. And now when I travel with Dayung, if, you know, we didn't do anything much this year, but I, I have been traveling doing the vegan meathead stuff where I speak at like VegFest or I have some kinds uh, one-off events where I'm lecturing about a vegan strength diet. Um, I, I hate touring now because it, it fucks with my <laughs> schedule and my ability to eat the right food. Um, more than three days at a time, I am just like, God, I need to get the fuck home and get back on schedule. You know, I really like the schedule now. So I'm glad I got the touring out of my system when I was younger because now, you know, I'm comp- I'm competitive in the powerlifting world. I, I usually do like uh, a qualifying meet and then uh, some kind of a championship meet each year. Um, and I have to stay really strict with everything to be able to keep doing that. And, um, but I find it really rewarding and it helps me feel good. And and like I said, it levels me out. So, you know, when I think back to the, the 200 days a year on the road with die young, I mean, God, that's the worst schedule for your body and your mind. I mean, and, and like I said, how I had come to hate the band. I also think I was mentally in a really, and emotionally in a really poor place because you get done playing a show at midnight. 
then you pack up, then you go eat, then you go to someone's house and you talk to them till 4 a.m. And then you get up at noon and you eat garbage on the road and then you go to a venue and you get there at 6 or 7 p.m. and then you sit around the venue. (laughs) There's a lot of idle time and a lot of junk food and just the most fucked up sleep schedule. Um, I found that the more I ordered my schedule, the better I felt. So I just felt, in a sense, happier, at least more leveled out with the fitness discipline and the eating discipline and and sleeping more like a normal person. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So as I get older, I don't miss touring. I mean, I still travel quite a bit, mostly for the the vegan meathead stuff. And... um, but I really try to manage it in a way that I can keep the fitness stuff first, sure. so I don't so I don't get off track with that. Yeah, um, you know, uh, Da Young's done a couple tours in the last two or three years that were like seven to nine days each, and man, that was kind of like my max at this point, given all the other things I'm juggling. Yeah, you're like no. I can't, I can't be out for this yeah. long. Yeah, yeah, you know, like an overnight drive, man. Like that, I used to do that three nights a week, whatever, and you know, went about my business. But an overnight drive for any of us now, being in our mid thirties, it just wrecks us for the whole week. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. It's like I, I'm not, I'm not used to this. You know, yeah, to, yeah. Even if it's like a two hour drive from like you know New York to Philly, it's like, oh, geez, man, that's forever. <laughs> <laughs> or just just the mental stress of traffic. I mean, I just can't uh. can't deal with that. <laughs> uh, um, and you know, kind of the idea of you being you know so involved with animal rights and your um, you know mission to share the idea that you can clearly be a, a healthy vegan, you know, a strong vegan, and all this stuff has you know been such a core component of who you are for as long as I've known you to be, like you said, you know, you're working out (laughs) (laughs) as you were touring with PETA too and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I guess where did you get kind of bit by the bug of, um, you know, working out and being fit from that perspective? Because clearly not everybody likes to do that. I think it was a combination of several things in my life. Like when I joined PETA two, I actually had just ended a like six year relationship that I had been in my whole early twenties was like my first serious relationship and, uh, getting back out into the single world <laughs> was a very sobering experience, you know? Um, <laughs> sure. And I, you know, you get reintroduced to insecurities you forgot that you have because you used to have some, you know, I used to have someone that was just kind of accepted me no matter what, but, uh, getting back out into the like dating world, you start to get more self-conscious. And so, and then also, as you get older, especially in your late 20s, you start to notice, oh, my metabolism not the same as when I was 21. And uh, I don't know, that was a motivator to to get more fit. But then also, like I said, when I was working with PETA, actually, I met my friend Billy, who was a vegan bodybuilder or somewhat, like not like a professional, but he was on the team that I started with at PETA 2. And he was one of the most fit vegans I'd ever met. And uh, we started working out in the uh, weight rooms at hotels and stuff with dumbbells and nothing super serious. But I like the way I felt. I like aspiring to something, like to make myself better. And like I said, when I was out in the field talking about campaigns with people, especially representing PETA because it's such a divisive name, um, I found that the more fit we were, 
the more willing people were to ask us questions and be curious and just, you know, it just didn't fit their stereotype of what a vegan was. So it made them curious. And uh, I think that was also a motivator to keep going down that fitness path. Um, and eventually I found, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not really cut out to be a bodybuilder too hairy. And, <laughs> and, um, also just the way, uh, fat sits on my body, like to, to cut all that, I start to feel really unhealthy. Um, but I, I discovered compound lifts and that led me to powerlifting and, um, powerlifting is a great sport because, you know, when you lift heavy, you can't lift every day. Your body will just shut down. Your central nervous system shuts down. You can't recover. So you can only do heavy lifts three or four days a week. And the rest of the time, you got to spend focusing on recovery, which means time out of the gym. So that means you have ample time to still have a, a social life or a creative life. Um, whereas I think bodybuilders and CrossFitters and things like that, they spend so much of their free time in the gym. And, uh, that was another reason I didn't really like those sports and I, I leaned toward powerlifting. Um, but man, I've, I got bit by the fitness bug while I was at PETA. And it's interesting because music led me to PETA and then PETA led me to fitness. And now, you know, I've got the book, the way the vegan meathead and I've toured all around the continent talking about vegan strength diet and uh i've been competing in powerlifting like five years now and i continue to improve at it yeah um no it's really it's really cool because yeah one connects to the other in very obvious directions and it's it's you know it's like you're you're using all of these things as building blocks to um not only the next thing but then it you know makes you a well-rounded person where people can kind of be like oh yes i see you not only have you been doing this for a long time but you have this previous experience that makes total sense of why you would do this yeah yeah so it's interesting one thing just led to another and strangely it all started with music and that led to activism and activism led to athletics yeah there you go um and something that I've noticed too, I mean, like you've mentioned on a more than one occasion and, uh, you know, you, you know, you're a writer, you have published books, you have published, you know, poetry. And it's one of those things where most people, um, that would just look at like, you know, one sliver of your life where it's just like, oh, okay, here's, here's this, you know, really buff dude that's a vegan. Uh, and he's a poet, like get the hell out of here. Like, you know, you always, it seems like you always enjoy defying conventions, whether that's, you know, being a vegan from Texas or, you know, all of these things. I'm sure that that has also played a part in your, you know, ability to sit down and and write a novel and your ability to, you know, pen poetry and stuff like that. Um, I'm sure you just get kind of a, a kick out of the way that people, uh, you know, are, are surprised by these things that you maybe share with them that are just like, dude, there's no, come on, Daniel, you wrote a book, dude. Like, come on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that goes back to, I guess when we were talking about the industrious nature, uh, like maybe I get some of it from my father. Um, in other ways, it's just, I haven't been content. And so I'm just restless and trying to find ways to express myself to deal with whatever pain of consciousness, the pain of failure, the pain of whatever we encounter in life that's challenging. Um, I don't know. I, sometimes I think me, 
maybe it's too much. People don't, are just kind of like, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> He's yeah, writing sure. about, you know, the first book I wrote was The Way of the Vegan Meathead, but it was because when I got into powerlifting, people were asking me about how I do it. It wasn't a book I actually wanted to write. It was a book people were asking me to do. Sure. The other stuff, like uh, the new novel called Canefield and the poetry stuff was stuff that kind of more naturally comes out of me because it's about me trying to process my own experience um, in my intimate life and my personal life and my upbringing, things like that. Um, But, you know, there's there's so much – the world is so full of everyone offering their contributions into the forum of whatever books and feelings and thoughts. And I think especially with social media now, it's so – so easy for everyone to just put their thoughts out there so no one's really asking me for (laughs) a novel or poetry but um the poetry is not far off from die young lyrics you know um i didn't want to get just pegged as the vegan guy (laughs) sure protein guy because yeah there's so much there's so many more dimensions to each of us than just like the one thing that society says ah this is what we use them for um, so whether people discover that side of me or connect with it or, or like it or not, I felt that, well, yeah, this is just what naturally kind of comes out of me. So I need to put it out there so I can get on with the next thing. Um, like for example, the, the new novel Canefield, which covers a lot of, um, kind of developmental relationship stories that, and it shows how they linked into my creative life with the bands. Um, it's all fictionalized, of course, but in a lot of ways it is kind of a con- confessional memoir. But um, that, you know, I started writing that before I, I started writing The Way the Vegan Meathead. And then in the midst of all the things going on in my life, people were like, hey, you're vegan, you lift. Tell us how. Tell us how, you know. <laughs> and so I, then I was like, well, it seems like people really, oh, wow, people want something from me finally. <laughs> So here, I guess I'll put this out, you know, Um, but I never wanted to be just that. So these other things were, I guess, I mean, I feel like good art comes from a place where you have to do it for yourself and whether other people connect with it or not is really not on you because to put out something authentic, you, you can't worry about that. But at the end of the day, as an artist, whether you're viable or not and whether you can have the means to continue doing it. It uh, depends on whether people consume it and connect with it or not. But you can't control that outcome. You know, like I never want to tailor what I do um, for success, even though, you know, as you get older, I think having some kind of success, even if it's in a day job kind of career, it becomes more important, you know. Um, but and that's why I've kept a day job. So that I don't have to compromise the art. Yeah, sure, sure. And what but, and and what yeah. have you what have you done from that perspective? From I mean, what do you do for your day job? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, I did spend a number of years in the nonprofit world, sure, in animal rights, and uh, I stumbled into a job with uh, Dell. Oh, okay. Yeah, like sales liaison work. Um, a number of years ago, and uh, you know, there was some. I got laid off this year, and so my new job is uh, like a quality analyst assisting the VA and helping uh, evaluate medical records for veterans so that they can 
hopefully get covered okay. on the biggest dime. You know, uh, that's a that's a whole like just a mess. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Uh, you know, um, so uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm at right now. But um, I kind of. I've never had like a career. I, I thought I was going to pursue animal rights and maybe you can relate because you're not with PETA anymore, correct? No, I mean, I do some consulting work for them, but that's, that's the extent. Oh, okay. I, Cause I think once yeah. you've, once you've worked for PETA, you always kind of are in their orbit. <laughs> so when they need, right, when right, they need right, help, yeah. they're like, Hey, can you do this? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I understand. Um, but yeah, most people, I, I almost look at time in the AR, like animal rights, nonprofit world as like military service. It's like for most people, it's not going to be a career, but you do it out of a service to something greater than you, especially when you're younger. Um, and then it wears you out and you just can't do it anymore. <laughs> well, I, well, I think from, from where the, the position that, that you were doing, where you were, you know, face to face with people every day, day in and day out speaking about, you know, your experience with, you know, veganism and answering questions and all that. Yeah. That to me is not a sustainable thing. Like, you know, I'm, right. Well, I came back and I actually worked in email marketing for, yeah, I remember that a while also. Um, and that was also exhausting. <laughs> well, it, it's cause I, I, it's something that I know that the organization and many other nonprofit organizations. And frankly, when you have people who are passionate about a thing and you, they come in the doors because they're so excited to work at wherever it is. Um, you yeah. know, it, it's, it is tough. Like, I mean, I saw that a day in and day out, even working at a record label. It's like, you know, people, uh, would, you know, people would come in and work for like, you know, $2 an hour. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but like yeah. they, it, when you are involved with the thing you're passionate about, you have to be careful to not, um, not only not burn yourself out, but then also not be exploited to the extent where you're just like, Oh, I don't feel like I'm even getting remotely, fairly compensated or whatever. Right. Right. Um, and I find in the, you know, I don't, anyone listening to this, I don't want to discourage them from going and working in the nonprofit world, uh, because it's so important. Same. Um, but I think for, and man, my hat is off to all those friends of ours that have stayed and made careers out of it because, uh, they found a, a way to balance their personal needs with, you know, the needs of like, you know, the animals or the, the dispossessed or, or whatever, whatever yeah. cause we're fighting for. And then, you know, they need somebody to do that. Um, but yeah, for sure. At the end of the day, we got to make an evaluation of, is this a life that we can personally be sustained with and, um, for our own health and our own sanity, can we do this? And a lot of people can't, and a lot of people just, I think it's fair to say that it's not the best life for most people. And for the people that can stay at it, you know, like I, mean, I know we both know people that have been there over a decade, maybe some close to two at this point. It's like, wow, what a hero, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's, it's the, the idea of compassion fatigue, you know, it's like, I mean, especially, especially at PETA where it's just like day in and day out, yeah. um, you know, you're confronted with all of these things and it's uh, yeah, it becomes draining where you're just like, right ah, man, I can't like, I, you know, you're being exposed to the stuff you're already aware of. And you're like, I don't want to, I don't want to see this undercover footage or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah, it's yeah. Rough. It's um, rough. And that's what, you know, I found new ways to advocate for myself, you know, and, and now what I'm doing is trying to kind of, uh, lead more by an example to show people how easy and fun and, um, advantageous it can be to 
to be a vegan if you do it right, if you plan it right. And um, I've distanced myself from all the horror. <laughs> yeah, well, you're trying to demystify something. Yeah. Like, you're, like you said, you're answering questions um, from people who are, are curious because of your actions and the way that you are as an individual yeah. and the way that you present yourself. So it's a whole different, yeah, like right. you said, it's, it's, it's a different it's angle. A- it's a dynamic that I can currently live with better than the last one. That yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. Um, yeah. but we all got to find that balance. We know? do. Yeah. Yeah. And you only know when you try the things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the, um, you know, I'm sure with the vegan meathead stuff that, um, you know, you're interacting with a lot of people and I don't use this disparagingly, but like, you know, civilians, it's like, you know, these are people yeah. who, are, who are clearly not in, you know, indoctrinated with all of our, you know, ins and outs of subcultures and being exposed to the idea of veganism when you're like, you know, 14 years old or whatever. Um, yeah. you know, so how, how interesting is it for you? And I'm sure how funny is it that these, um, you know, these questions come up to you that are like the most typical, especially the protein one where it's just like, I'm sure you answer that 400,000 times in a given year. Um, yeah. You know, so how, how do you kind of, uh, you know, handle that? Is it basically just kind of like, you know, you have your sort of like, all right, well, here's, here's my talking points. I know how to answer this one or whatever. And not in a dispassionate way, but just in a, all right, I'm, I'm used to this line of questioning. Well, I think it's refreshing because it's so new for all these other people. I mean, you just have to realize for millions of people, they're just now finding out what veganism is. So um, I I try to lay it out in a way. I mean, when I give lectures about it, it's pretty stock. You know, I go by my PowerPoint and I already know what I'm going to say. And it echoes a lot of whatever I said in my book. And... um, what I like the most is the question and answers, you know, where it's more of just a dialogue. Um, because it's, it's just surprising to see what angles people are coming at it from. You know, it's really weird to me that for most people I'm meeting out at these veg fests and stuff, propaganda and earth crisis aren't household names. <laughs> you yes. know, uh, uh, you know, that's how I grew up in hard, uh, in animal rights is like, and when I started working at PETA, it's like everybody was there because of those bands. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. It's you know, like, I, and I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore, you know, because times change. And, um, but you know what I find the most challenging actually is just speaking to anyone about things that aren't vegan related and things that aren't kind of, anything I would talk about in Die Young, you know, which kind of would be almost like this Bill Hicksian kind of uh, <laughs> sinister commentary about society. Sure. Um, Cause what I've got into now with like the novel writing is um, storytelling and there's a storytelling group in Memphis. It's kind of like the moth, but it's, I'm living in Memphis right now and they have a thing called spill it, which I've, I've, uh, I attend their events and it's just storytelling and the guy that runs it, he does workshops, and I've gone through his workshops, and we work on telling stories because that's something I want to be good at because um, I'm speaking in front of people all the time. But I've, I've gotten up in front of you know these crowds of strangers just to tell a random story and tried to make the story compelling. And I found that just telling an experience in a story kind of format was caused me so much more anxiety than talking about vegan protein or getting a vasectomy, which I tell people, or shoplifting, which I would talk about in Dayung shows all the time. You know, all these like really taboo kinds of things. And I like to shock people. But when I got out 
And that's like the real civilian uh, communication experience. It's just you get up and share an experience in your life with a room full of strangers and you try to make it something that they can relate to. Man, that, oh man, I was so much more nervous doing that than anything I've done for Vegan Meathead or Dayong. Um, and it's, it's kind of weird that talking about more common experiences was more difficult. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That it's like the, the things that are, you know, clearly, especially in your head, more nuanced where it's just like, well, you know, veganism is something that I've, I've been wrestling with for many, many years, but then like, you know, these, these emotions that other people can have about the thing that you speak about is difficult to navigate. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, when it comes to vegan uh, subject matter, I feel like an expert. I'm just in such a comfort zone. I can get up in front of two, three hundred people and just blah, blah, blah. This is what I do. Make some stock joke. And it all goes over well. It's just very routine. Um, and uh, then, you know, when it came to Dai Young, you know, you're playing in front of mostly young men who are angry just like you. And you say the controversial fucked up thing that no one else in the world would appreciate. But then, you know, you, you're agitating this crowd of hardcore kids and they're kind of, you know, they're in your plane of consciousness. So it's not, it's not that vulnerable really. Um, I, I think in Dayung I always tried to go to a vulnerable place, like talking about depression or suicide. Um, you know, cause we had, we had a guitar player who, I think, I don't know if it was an intentional uh, suicide, but he, he overdosed on drugs um, a number of years ago. You know, I started talking about things like that more and the way we felt about it as his friend on, on stage. And, and I found that a lot of people will come up and, and share stories afterwards. And, and that was nice and cathartic. But uh, I don't know. I felt a, I guess I felt a comfort because even though I feel very alienated in the hardcore scene, especially as I get older, it's still my tribe. You know, I still kind of know the, the wavelength that we're on when I'm at a show. You yeah, know. for sure. It's like, uh-huh. yeah, when you've been experiencing it for as long as you have, like there's a familiarity, no matter, you know, if you didn't go to a show for 15 years, you could probably still <laughs> jump in and still recognize shades of it from, you know, your massive year absence, but you haven't been that. So yeah, you're, gonna, yeah. you're still going to feel that. So yeah. Yeah. And, and then getting up in front of total strangers who you have none of that basis with. That I found is much more difficult, and that's kind of like one of the challenges that I'm trying to <laughs> trying to uh, <laughs> add it to my list of trades. I'm not a master of. Um, sure, <laughs> that's kind of where I am now because with the novel and the poetry and stuff, and those those are the kinds of writing that uh, I'm pursuing more heavily right now. Um, I guess trying to to tap into the basis with a wider group of people is something I feel uh, I need to be able to do, but it's, I find it strangely more, more challenging. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. Anytime you're trying to, you know, extend your reach into other things that are clearly unfamiliar, it's like, well, yeah, you're, it's all an experiment. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Daniel, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It was uh, really enjoyable for me. Uh, likewise, man. Thank you so much for uh, keeping this thing going. I'll be listening to all your episodes. That was that. Thank you very much, Daniel, for coming on the show and uh, sharing all that stuff. Because, yeah, I just I appreciate when people 
trust me and want to come on the show in order to, you know, express whatever it is that's on their mind and be able to talk about things that, uh, you know, they might be a little uncomfortable to share or whatever. But uh, yeah, thank you very much, Daniel. Appreciate it. And like I said, go check out all of his books. Go check out veganmeathead.com. It's really, really compelling uh, approachable stuff. If you are into nutrition and health and weightlifting and all that stuff, um, he is an expert at that. And uh, I encourage you to check out his stuff. Next week, we have Scott Hobart, who plays in a band called Giant's Chair. They were a pretty, they, they loomed pretty large in my life in regards to the sort of mid 90s emo stuff. And uh, Giant's Chair has returned. They've, they're releasing a new full length. And uh, I wanted to have Scott on because, uh, you know, the band hadn't really done anything in close to 20 years. And then they started playing some shows and realized it was fun and decided to put out a record, all that fun stuff. So yeah, if you're a fan of mid nineties emo, the next week is absolutely for you. And I fall very much into that camp. So anyways, until then, please be safe, everybody. Hi there. I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real life best friends, but we met playing fake life best friends, Turk and JD on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to rewatch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Hey there, all you lovely listeners. Let's dive into this latest release that is going to suck the life out of you in the best way possible. So listen up, because the Womanizer Next 3D Pleasure Air Stimulator, available from Pink Cherry, takes pleasure to a whole new dimension, literally. Imagine taking the speed and intensity of the original groundbreaking pleasure air technology combined with new climax control, so you can control even the depth of the airwaves. The 3D Pleasure Air technology offers a deeper, richer sensation that might just transport you to another universe of pleasure. The Womanizer Next 3D, available from Pink Cherry, is the only toy that allows you to take complete control of your orgasm journey with fully customizable speeds, intensities, and depths. Made from soft-touch silicone, a fully waterproof body, and smart silence technology, you can enjoy pleasure anywhere, anytime. So what are you waiting for? Ditch the dull and enjoy unparalleled pleasure from the Womanizer Next 3D, available from Pink Cherry. Visit PinkCherry.com and save an extra 20% off with code NEXT.